Who would you be if you didn't hide behind your shame? Where would you be if your inner judge didn't dictate your life? Hello, hello. We are here to break cycles, to open conversation into the taboo, and most of all, we are here to feel sexually liberated. Welcome to Your Body, Your Story. Welcome to episode five, and thank you so much for being here. This episode is with my good friend Bean or Corrine (laughs) Simpson. Yeah, this was a beautifully long episode where we went into quite a few different topics. Um, But yeah, we started out with talking about the feeling of being quote-unquote broken when you maybe have different feelings or different ideas or different... You just feel different. And in some ways, that can sometimes feel like there's something wrong with you and that you're broken. Yeah, and then we kind of went into talking about the institution of marriage and having children and what that looks like and not needing to follow the norm of getting married and having children if that's not something you desire. Then we kind of started to dive into language and identity and kind of the language we use to identify and um, also believing that, you know, your identity and your gender and your sexuality is and can be fluid and then we kind of dove into learning about sexuality and what that has looked like for each of us and some struggles that um, we've been through trying to figure out what you know kind of what our sexuality is and how we feel yeah then we kind of went into talking about polyamory and monogamy and there's a point throughout too where there's a slight mention of suicidal ideation. And then continuing on, we talked about, you know, attraction and intimacy in relationships, which led into communication and emotional regulation and what good communication is for us. And then uh, a really cool term that I learned for the first time called compersion that I'm going to start using from here on out because that's an amazing term. Um, And then we kind of ended off with um, more communication, but specifically talking about my own experiences with some workshops and courses. So one specifically was called nonviolent communication that I have learned and I'm continuing to practice and learn more about in my own life and relationships. And we kind of well, in this one course I took, it kind of covered three different things. So it covered nonviolent communication. And then another program called Positive Intelligence that is made by a man named Shirzad. And then in this same kind of umbrella of conversation, um, some of the information that I talk about came from a book called Speak Peace in a World of Conflict by Marshall Rosenberg. And I'm actually really, really hoping that the couple who taught me or did this course is going to be coming on here on this podcast one of these days. So fingers crossed that they will do that. But One more final mention is a book that Bean mentioned that is called More Than Two, and it's written by Franklin, I hope I don't mispronounce this, but Franklin Vo, 
and Eve Rickert. So it's definitely a good one to take a look at. But yeah, this was such a great episode and I really hope you enjoy it. I'm at the age now where I'm like, I do want people to learn from what I've learned because I remember being so confused and so feeling like I'm broken because the way I was raised was so different from what I am now. And I still had all of these feelings, but absolutely no language for them and no way to process them. And if I had no examples, no one to turn to, nothing. And it took forever because even even because I'm 47. So back when I was young, this language was not as prevalent. The openness was not as much there Mm -hmm. and especially not in Christian circles where I was. And I remember thinking, even when I was in my 30s, like, am I broken? Right. And if if the language had just been there, if there had been people that I could listen to who felt like me, I'd be like, oh, I'm not I'm not the sex. I'm not broken because I don't like sex. Because I always thought, is it is it the meds? Is it me? Is it my brain? Is it birth control? What is it? I must be broken. I'm not broken. I'm just different. Mm-hmm. And so I really think it's important if I have these experiences to put them out there because there's probably someone like me going, oh, lots I'm, of I'm people. Up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's why I'm like, I don't want to be a closed book. Not now, because I have I've gone through too much to get here. I should share it. Yep. Especially as we have more people who are starting to like look within of like how do I truly feel do I actually identify as a woman do I actually feel attraction to the opposite sex like there are so many people that are actually really starting to question the norms and the binaries that we have that it's just so I think important but also really cool that this is happening so as younger people are getting older and learning and questioning and stuff like that they actually can have somewhere to go to and have examples and they can have a better idea of like, okay, maybe I don't feel quite like that. So maybe that's not quite where I'm at. Where am I on the spectrum? Spectrum, I think, is the main word too, not one or the other. Yeah, I agree. Uh, The more, it's true with anything, the more that you talk about it and the more open you are, the more you discover that there's nuances to everything. Mm -hmm. There's more than two sides to everything, including gender. And everybody who feels something that they think doesn't fit actually does have a place. So the more you talk about it, the more people feel included and seen. And that's really important because you can't be your best self and you can't contribute your best effort if you feel like you're hiding or you're broken. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's true. And broken is such a interesting word because I do feel like that's kind of how it is. Like people way back in time would go into hospitals, go into psych wards because they were seen as something a little bit different and that is scary and and unhealthy and you need to be tucked away and hidden and put behind a locked door. Like there's so much of that that happened that now we actually get to see that there's nothing wrong with anybody. You're totally fine. Like it just means that you have a different way of processing. Maybe your brain has a different connection in it than somebody else and that's, there's nothing wrong with that. Exactly. Like we're no longer locking people up because they're lesbian. <laughs> I mean, that's the least. Or killing thing, them because right? of it. Yeah. yeah. Like that's, I mean, there are still places in the world where it's very dangerous. That is true. So that's we're talking true. from a very privileged Western perspective because there are places where you can't admit that or you will be killed. Yep. But in a Western terms, it, in Western terms from what we know of our own past here, yeah, we've kind of come a long way. And yet also still, we're still being persecuted. Because it's kind of 
retreating now. Like all the progress we made is kind of being pulled back now because people are scared. Mm -hmm. Which is why I think things like this are so important. The more that we talk about it and the more that everyone realizes they can be who they truly are, the less power those forces have. Yep. There was a quote that I saw once. I don't know if it was on Facebook or who even said it first or whatever, but it was like, someone who was gay or I guess identified as gay was like I grew up with a family of people who are straight it did not make me straight what makes you think that a child growing up with someone who is in a gay relationship what makes you think that that's going to make them gay that's not how it works it doesn't work like that you might have different factors that kind of um what's the word I want to use I always lose my words when I'm trying to talk that might like allow you the space I guess to question and wonder because you have different examples it's even just like with marriage like this is something from my own experience that it's like I always believe that it's like I'm going to get married I'm going to have kids I'm going to do the thing that we are literally kind of trained to do as human beings and I have my aunt as an example of someone who never wanted kids she's been married and divorced and she now lives on her own again, with no kids. And I've now been able to see, and some of my friends now too, who are like, I'm never having kids. I'm never getting married. Those types of things that I've had now examples in my life who are the opposite of what we're trained to do by society. And I'm looking at the two kinds of lives kind of that I could see myself living. And I'm like, hmm, one looks less stressful, more fun. (laughs) And like, yeah, better in in kind of one way. I mean, better in maybe better is not the right word, but like, you know, not having children, not getting married and having to spend who knows, like $30,000 or something on a wedding, which actually I've never enjoyed weddings. And Me neither. as a kid, I used to like be grumpy and be like, why are we here? And I like sometimes enjoyed like getting dressed up and stuff and seeing all the pretty people. But then it was like, is this done yet? What's the point of this thing? And I'd always be grumpy at weddings. (laughs) And so now it's like, well, why would I get married? One, if I don't want to spend the money on that, if I don't want to invite a whole bunch of people that maybe don't mean as much to me, but there's an expectation that they should have to be there. Yeah. And then children, I mean, I still flip flop about, but I'm more on the end of like no children because of the people in my life, like my aunt, that I'm like, she goes on like three trips a year for like three weeks at a time to all these amazing places. She can get up and leave whenever she wants. She can cook whatever she wants. She can go out multiple nights a week and have tons of fun. She's got tons of friends that she goes out with. And then I look at some of my friends who have kids and you're like, you don't leave the house. I try to make plans with you. I never see you. Like, you can't do this. You can't do that. Your kid goes to bed at this time. No, I can't. I can't leave. Like all of those things. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. You can't pee alone. (laughs) Like the cell joys. (laughs) Yeah. So it's it's interesting. Once you have examples, what that does to your ability to then choose for yourself what feels right. Because otherwise I could be married already and I could already have a child. Oh, yeah. I yeah. could be miserable. Maybe I wouldn't be. Who knows? But those things could be already there in my because life. Because the societal default is cis, het, family, husband, wife, two kids, job, dog, retirement, Like, that's the narrative. The narrative is that there's a man and a woman and they get married and they have children and they have a house. That's just the narrative we've been fed forever. Mm -hmm. And that flies in the face of everything we've ever known from other cultures and even our own. But that's the great American dream, so to speak. That's what everyone wanted. It's very 50s. 
Um, and that's just not true. Like people think people people think that if you choose something that isn't that you're deviating from the path. But that's the wrong way to think about it, because that's assuming that the path is by default heteronormative and family oriented. And it isn't. We have to break down that thinking because there is no path. There's no handbook. You don't have to do it one way or choose to be alternative. Literally everything is a choice. Marriage is a choice. Children are a choice. As education is a choice. Sexuality is not a choice like your, your identity. It's not nurture. That's why when they say, oh, if I use the crosswalk, I'm going to turn gay. <laughs> You're really not because it's not nurture. It's, it's nature. You're born this way, um, but, which means you can choose anything. Mm -hmm. You have nothing but choice in front of you. And we really have to break down this idea that there is a way to do it. And then there's the other. Because yes. it's the other where so many of us fit that's damaging people and causing people to feel left out or like they don't matter. Mm -hmm. That brought me to the example of like bathroom situation mm -hmm. out in public and how horrifying that can be for some individuals that don't feel like they do fit in the binary, don't know where to go. They've maybe been harassed in their past and they don't have a specific way that they feel necessarily feels right. Like I actually truly believe in making a bathroom just a bathroom. Ally McBeal did it. And that was like a long time ago. They just had a bathroom and everyone's like, oh, genderless bathroom? How avant-garde. You have genderless bathrooms at your house. That's the example I use all the time. Right? You have people over or do you have separate bathrooms for the men and the women? Surely no, not. No, you go into the same bathroom, maybe not at the same time, but still, yeah. you're using the same bathroom. Make sure that we're educating people on proper etiquette in a bathroom mm -hmm. and we're golden. Yes. Just go to the bathroom. It's it's just a biological need. It's not a political statement. You just have to pee. That's it. Yep. It's not that big of a deal. Also, this whole predators go to the bathroom. I mean, everyone goes to the bathroom. <laughs> I just want to say, and predators don't hang out in bathrooms. Yeah. Drag queens are not predators. Like, there's this whole, if a, a man dressed as a woman goes into the girl's bathroom, he's preying on girls. That's, like, ridiculous. You're being reductive of identity. You're being, you're being you're lying because there's no proof of that. You're like generating this fear of the other that doesn't even need to exist. There's so many things wrong with that. And that's the rhetoric. It's like, well, we have to have separate bathrooms and you have to go into the one that your genitals match with. Mm -hmm. Why? <laughs> that's, why? 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 It's just a bathroom. Mm -hmm. Nothing bad happened in Allie McBeal in the bathrooms. Mm -hmm. Sometimes singing and dancing. That's about it. There's nothing wrong with that. There's Why not make it enjoyable? <laughs> Have a musical in the bathroom. Yeah. <laughs> Who cares? <laughs> yeah. Um, but actually, I, I want to maybe like go back yep. to the beginning. <laughs> back to the beginning. First, how do you identify Kareen Bean? Kareen Bean. My my <laughs> given name is Kareen, which is fine. My mother uses it. She, she uses it like Kareen, like that. When I'm oh, when you're like, ah, she's like Kareen. Language, you know, things like that. And but I everyone calls me Bean. That's my nickname. But you can use either. I don't really care. Um, I identify as I'm cis. I my pronouns are she, her. I'm queer, polyamorous, egosexual. And then can you define those for us for anybody who could be listening that don't understand what those terms are? Yep. I mean, cis, most people know. I'm I was born 
female and I I grow up as female, I identify as female. I am the gender that I was assigned at birth. Um, I am queer. I like to use the term queer because it's one that we reclaimed. I know there's still some controversy about that. Mm -hmm. Some people don't like that we that the queer community uses queer. I personally really love it because it's a reclamation. And also queer just feels less exclusive and more inclusive. Mm -hmm. Queer kind of embodies everyone. I feel like everyone is welcome to the queer community. But within that definition, I identify as um, I try and say pansexual because people have the wrong definition in mind about bisexual. In truth, they're very similar. Bisexual does not just mean two genders. You're attracted to men and women. It means two plus. You're ident- you are attracted to more than two. You're bisexual. Um, so it's very close to pansexual. But I identified a pan- as pansexual because pansexual includes non-binary and, and two-spirit and, and transgender. And literally, you're attracted to the person and the package does not matter. Mm-hmm. Um I identify as polyamorous, which is not the same thing as unicorn hunting or just wanting a threesome. It's different. Polyamorous is open relationships where you are not monogamous. So you have committed relationships, but they aren't necessarily closed. You don't exist in a state of monogamy. You will have other sexual partners, other intimate partners, um, and it's 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 all agreed upon beforehand. So it's not there's no cheating because you talk about it. There's a lot of communication. So it's very um, open, multiple relationships that everyone is okay with. And then egosexual is a fairly new term. It is on the asexual spectrum. I don't like saying straight out that I identify as asexual because people have a very uh, limited understanding of what asexual actually means. People think asexual means no sex, period. And in truth, the asexual spectrum is so broad and it encompasses so many different types of feelings and people. Um, Aromantic, uh, just strictly asexual. People who love cuddling don't like sex. People who love sex don't like cuddling. People who don't like any of it. People who really like physical acts but don't like all of the mushy sentiment. Like there's so much that goes into asexuality. Egosexuality is very specific. The definition of it is sex without self. So it literally means I personally, speaking for me, <laughs> I don't know what I don't know any other egosexuals. So me, I love everything to do with sex. I love watching it. I love reading it. I love talking about it. I love ethical porn. I love erotica. I love fanfic. Like I love voyeurism. I like being in the kink community. I love all of it. I just don't like having it. So literally, I just don't want to be physically, personally involved in it. Other than that, I love it. I just don't want to have it. Mm -hmm. So that's the definition of that. Thank you. (laughs) Had to get like deep on that because it's a very new term. It only came around in the 2000s. Right. So people don't really know what it is. And I don't know anyone else who is it. Mm-hmm. which is why I want to talk about it, because a lot of people might just not know that they're it. Yep. Yep. I honestly think that's how most of these things come about is like through conversation, like the amount of times that I've heard someone say something and you're like, oh, OK. Like even little things like I have I hear ringing in my ears. I didn't know that that was like a totally different thing that most people don't actually experience. 
until I heard a term and someone said it and I was like, I I have ringing in my ears. I thought that was a normal thing. Little things like that that you like sometimes just think is you, you're weird. It's normal. Everybody has it or whatever. And it's not always the case until you actually hear that <laughs> that's not the case. And there's a term for it. And this is what it is. And you're like, oh, my God. It's really like- liberating. Yeah. Because, it is liberating. Because I've had lots of sex in relationships with men and women. And I've had multiple partners. I'm an open book. I mean, Haley, you can ask me anything. But I, I've had a lot of sex. But that's also because I don't hate it while I'm having it. I just don't want to have it. It's not like I have it and it's horrible. I'm not saying that I grew up just in misery. That's not it. It's very pleasant when you're having it. Mm -hmm. I just really don't look for it. I don't need it. I don't want it. I'd prefer not. Right. Um, my girlfriend always teases me because I just don't like sticky things. And sex is very sticky. I mean, there's more to it than that, but it's very fun to go. I just don't like being sticky. <laughs> but growing up, I thought you have to have sex, right? You have to have sex in some form. You're human. You must have sex. And I really liked thinking about it and reading about it. And I was very into that, but I just didn't like having it. And with all partners, it was like, mm, we had it last week. Do we have to have it again this week? <laughs> and they're like, why are you counting? And why is it like, <laughs> can't we just have it? And I'm like, oh, like. We only, it's only been two weeks. Must we have it again? And then I was like, well, I'm broken. Why do I feel that way? Why do I, what is wrong with me? Mm -hmm. Because I should want to have it. I should be looking forward to this connection, but I feel more connected when we're talking or when we're sitting together. Right. Sorry, I just had an idea. Yeah. A qu blah, blah, blah. Yeah, question, I guess. Um, do, so even when you were like a teenager, and your hormones were starting to take over, like typically, I don't want to say typically, that's not the right word. For a lot of people's experiences, they start to feel tons and tons of attraction and need and want for sex. Did you have that at that time? Totally. I still have that. Okay. I'm very attracted to people, um, especially parasocial relationships, but that's because I'm very ADHD and that's a, really a function of my ADHD. So that's separate. But I have a lot of attraction and I am, especially when I was a teenager, I was like heavy into like the heavy petting and the groping. You weren't allowed to have sex because I was Christian. So we were all technical virgins and I love making out and I loved it. And I had raging hormones and I enjoyed sex. Like the times that I had it, I, I didn't dislike it. And I've had very great partners and very terrible partners, just like everyone. Mm -hmm. It's just more that after that honeymoon phase, after that rabbit phase <laughs> when you're together and you just like fuck all the time sorry for the language no swear as much as you want <laughs> you know when you like fuck all the time because it's so new after that i was like that's good it's done gotcha like i'm still attracted to the person i still find them beautiful and appealing and i love spending time with them and even fight and i'm even attracted to them i just don't want to act on that in a sexual way i don't want our genitals to be entwined right to express that mm-hmm so, yeah, I still feel those things. I'm horny as hell, but I just don't want... Please don't make me sticky. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Um, and I guess, like, at what point did you actually start to um, embrace and understand more of that and also start to, like, have conversations with your partners about how you process and how you work through it? No partner until my present one. Okay. Because I only discovered this about myself. And like, this is why I'm so open and talking about it. 
because not a lot of people know this about me, even in my friend circle, because it's quite recent and I don't walk around going, hey, good to see you. I'm egosexual. Like, <laughs> that's kind of weird. But really recent because my last relationships, I was in a poly triad um, that ended in 2020. And it was after that ended that I discovered the term. I was talking a lot with my friend and being like, why? Why don't I like sex? I mean, I love sex. So why don't I want it? Like, what is the deal? And she actually did a lot of research and she found the term. And she's like, is this what you feel? And I was like, bing, holy shit, that's me. Like, I'd never felt as completely seen as when I read that definition, mm -hmm. as when she presented egosexuality to me. And that was probably in 2021. And I'm like, well, in my 40s by the time this happened. Right. And that's why I really want to talk about it, because this whole time, I couldn't even have conversations with partners about how I felt and how I viewed sex so that they could help me or make decisions otherwise, because I didn't know. I thought I was just functionally broken. I thought there was something wrong with my chemistry and that it was me mm -hmm. who was at fault when there's no fault. However, you you're not at fault if you don't want to have sex. You just want different things. And when I found this term, I was like, wow. So my current partner, we talk a lot about how intimacy does not necessarily have to be hand in hand with the sexual act. Yep. And I think we were talking before about this and I mentioned that. And I think what this has really done is shown me that we in our society have very narrowly entwined intimacy in relationship with sexual acts. And they're very hard to separate in our minds. Mm -hmm. So we think if you're not having sex, you're not intimate. And there's, a, there's always the, that rhetoric where if you're living together, if you're a couple living together and you stop having sex, you're just roommates. And that's not true. Because there is a whole other level of intimacy that you have or you should have with a partner that is not sexual. You can have a sexual relationship with them and, a, and intimacy that way, but that's not the only way to have intimacy. Yeah. And what I'm discovering through this and what she's helped me with, because she tells me how she feels, because she likes having sex, but she has other partners for that. But she tells me what she feels about me is there's this trust that you don't necessarily get with other people. We've known each other for a long time before we got together. And so there's this intimacy and vulnerability. We're able to be completely truthful with each other and completely ourselves. There's nothing held back and there's something very liberating and safe, especially if you've had trauma in your past, mm -hmm. about the intimacy of revealing to people. And that's a whole other kind of intimacy that forms relationship and committed relationship. You don't have to touch genitals for that to be valid. And I just really want that message to be out there. We need to start defining sex as its own thing and not make relationships depend upon it. Because it also means that people who are having normal sexual, normal quote unquote, whatever that is, people who are having sexual relationships are maybe not focusing on the other types of intimacy that they should be. Mm-hmm. Because you're folk, you're like, well, we're married and we're having sex. We've got a kid. We're doing great. Are you, though? Because there's so many other layers to who you are as people that you actually need to focus on. Intimacy is not just sex. There's so much more to it. And that's how I feel. I love sex, but I consider it a hobby, whereas my intimacy is completely devoid of sex. If that makes sense. Yep, 
Totally. It made me think of some other examples I have in my life where and I think this might also be another like thing that we think is like common and okay and all these things where as we age we stop having sex we stop having even sometimes intimacy right like in some cases as we've gotten older people stop having sex they stop even having intimacy it's like you get home from work you eat you watch tv you go to bed and you don't have those intimate conversations experiences like things that can really really help with a relationship and just your quality of life and enjoyment of life that's so often that that's also considered normal but I also think that there should be more effort into the intimacy into quality time into finding hobbies and things to enjoy with each other like me and Tanner just started doing like partner acrobatics and after every single time I've said to him like this makes me feel so close to you and like this is where I feel like our intimacy can grow is more kind of hobbies that we can do together where it's a because it's trust too with partner acrobatics you have to trust the person who's like lifting you or what's considered it's called flying and as him being a base and stuff like it building that level of trust in a way that's not just like conversation or like we run a business together like that's a different kind of level of trust than when you're actually doing some kind of activity together and that to me makes me feel so much closer to him and feel like I want to be more affectionate makes me feel like I want to do more than I want to have sex like it's those acts of intimacy that make me want to do the other acts of sexual intimacy yeah that's a that's a really good point like that the vulnerability of trusting someone in that way is completely a completely different level of intimacy Mm -hmm. and also you you do find when you do things together you learn different things about yourself and about the other person and everything that you shared together that you didn't know that you could do every revelation that you have together is a new level of intimacy that if you're inclined to express sexuality, will feed into your sexuality and make it better. Your sex will be better if you're more intimate. Mm-hmm. And if you don't want to have physical sex, that intimacy is itself the foundation of your relationship and it's just as fulfilling as anything else. Yep. And you're right. It's trust and vulnerability and honesty. Totally. Yep. It honestly makes me think of like times where we've both been working really really hard or have been passionate about our own personal things and the more that we are doing things separately and not coming together like at the end of the day or on the weekend the less I want to have sex like I do truly need for myself that those other acts of something that we do together even if it's like cooking we actually also really really love like hosting people at our house um actually it's like Esther Perel talks about this that um Couples so often feel closer and want to have more sexual intimacy when they see their partner doing something from a distance, when it's something they're seeing them in their element and you're seeing them with like a new set of eyes kind of thing is when people tend to feel so attracted to their partner. And I do find that that is the case. And sometimes even distance too, like sometimes if I'm gone for the day and I come back, we're just like so much more happy to see each other. Yeah, absolutely. I totally understand that. It's really fantastic when you step outside of your own thoughts and outside of your relationship and just look at your partner as a person right especially when they're the person doing the thing that they're really good at it's like you're kind of blown away that this super talented amazing whole unique person is like your 
partner. Mm-hmm. It gives you this whole new perspective and this and this desire to learn about that thing. That's actually part of what drives Polly is compersion. Do you know what compersion is? No. Compersion is something that should not be exclusive to the polyamorous community because it would help a lot of monogamous relationships too. Um, it's sort of the, it's a functional opposite of jealousy, where jealousy is when someone is doing something, everyone thinks it's only sexual related, but it's not. It's about like promotions or making money or time, whatever. You can be jealous of anything. Jealousy is when you feel possessive and you feel scorned if someone is doing something without you or they're having a good time without you or they're succeeding without you. Compersion is the opposite. Compersion is where you get personal joy and satisfaction from your loved one's success. So when your person is on a trip and they're having a really good time, if you're really happy for them and not just like, woe is me, I'm not with them, that's compersion. Hmm. And I struggle with that a lot especially when people are on trips without me because I want to travel. So I have have not been very good about this in the past, but it's something that you work on, just like you work on not being jealous and just like you work on communication. Compersion is something that you actively work on. And it's actually the only way that polyamorous relationships can be truly healthy because you can't function in jealousy. If your partner has a partner, they have to equally spend time with both of you and you need to make your peace with that. Because if you're jealous, you're not going to last. So compersion is a really beautiful thing to cultivate because it makes you start looking at people as who they are and what they offer. And then you feel glad about that, that they're in your life. Right. So you you look at what your partner can do. And instead of going, well, he didn't ask me to do that. You go, that's amazing. That's an amazing skill. And he's so happy for having done that. Like he's come back and he's excited to share that with me. And I feel so excited about that for him. Or when they get a promotion, you're like, I'm so excited about that for you because this is your dream. You're not just like, are we going to have more money for the house? It's not like that. It's not about you at all. It's about them. And you're so happy for them that it makes you happy. So it's a thing that polyamorous people, the poly community knows a lot about. But really, anyone who has a relationship should understand compersion. This should be taught in school. It should be. You. <laughs> everyone should be in your relationship, whatever it is, be striving for compersion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot like what you were talking about, too, when you share experiences. There's no room for envy or for doubt. You 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 become joyful because you're together in this experience. You're excited that he's excited. Right. And vice versa. That's true. That is something that I do find is like so amazing in relationships is being able to share excitement with each other. And then, yeah, not being jealous about it. It's hard. It's just trying to be excited with them. Yeah. If you truly love someone, why are you covetous of their success? Mm-hmm. Why does their success or happiness threaten you? If you really love someone, them achieving things does not take away from you. Right. It enhances them. And because they're enhanced, you're enhanced because they're happier and you love that about them. Mm-hmm. Like It should be very natural, but society has taught us to be the opposite, to be greedy and individualistic and and closed, where compersion requires you to be very open and sharing and intimate. I guess in that way, too, it sometimes takes away some of that like competitive, I don't know if I want to say need, but sometimes spirit around things, right? That 
And I think this sometimes comes across actually both sides. I was going to say, especially women, but not necessarily the case where people feel like like being the breadwinner is a big deal and that, you know, men typically should be the breadwinners, how it's viewed. But then we have women now who have been in the workforce for a long time that also feel like we need to work our butts off and we need to be the breadwinner just to prove something. And then on the other end, still, if the woman's a breadwinner, then the men feel like they're something less about them that, you know, like all of those things that I feel like if you have more of that, what is it called? Compersion. Compersion. You would have maybe less of that competitive spirit of like, I have to one up you. Yes. It's C-O-M-P-E-R-S-I-O-N. Compersion. It's a real word. I didn't make it up. Even if I did, though, you should. It's an awesome word. So now it's real. No, it's real. Um, But it it also like the whole gender roles thing ties into toxic masculinity, too, which is a subject that should also be addressed, because I imagine that there are some men who dislike the pressure of feeling like they have to be the breadwinner and the man of the house. See, This is something. Oh, my gosh. This just brings me to all my classes that I've been taking that like the idea of patriarchy this is actually on my the last episode that I did too. We talked about it. That patriarchy is, first of all, not a feminist thing. Um, and patriarchy affects both men and women, right? When it comes to breadwinner, men being the ones that are on top, the powerful ones, the wealthy ones. Like, not all men agree with that. Not all women agree with that. Like, those types of ideas do not actually fit most people. Agree. Yeah. Agree. And it's very easy to turn the discussion about patriarchy and feminism into just men versus women, but it's not like that. It's just—it's the same thing as thinking that you have to get married and have kids. It's a societal construct that we've all just accepted blindly, and we've never questioned why it's there or if it's really working for us. Exactly. And, and it isn't, because there are just as many women who want to be the head of the household and just as many men who don't. Exactly. And there's yep. nothing wrong with that. People are like, oh, it's unmasculine. What does that even mean? You don't have to be the head of the household to be who you are. Mm-hmm. Your your personhood is not defined by the roles that you're taking on. It's who you are. Mm-hmm. I, this is this is kind of there's aspects of dom sub relationships that display the patriarchy backlash because very often and like not across the board, but very often men who are in very powerful positions who make decisions all day and run things all day, prefer to be the sub behind closed doors because they're tired of making decisions and they want someone else. Like that goes into a more a, a more sex or, or a more fetish expression of it. But that's why they want to be subs. They mm-hmm. want to be like, I don't now want to come to my personal time, my private time, my playtime and have to also be the one making all the decisions because I can't. It's the same thing on the women's end too. Like yeah. if women are in powerful positions or positions of being business owner, a boss, or even just like running their family and having to make decisions all day and be the one in control, like you don't want to then, like you said, go into your personal life or go into the bedroom and also continue that. Like you need the balance. No matter what you have in life, there needs to be balance. And that includes wanting to be more of the submissive side and wanting to be the one that can just let go and have somebody else take over. Yeah. And and I mean, if people aren't comfortable with the word submission, uh, it's just more of the side where you let someone else decide for you, where you trust someone else to yeah. make decisions for you and, and you you're not fighting them. Go. Because if you are always 
striving to be the dominant person in life, in home, in work, in career, in private, in sex. There's actually, and there's actually something wrong with that. You should not want or need to be in control 100% of the time. You should be able to let go in some aspect and trust someone. Yeah. Otherwise, your relationships are not truly fulfilling you. I would be really curious to have a conversation with someone about that of who needs to be in control all the time and doesn't want to let go because I feel like maybe this isn't the case and maybe it is that there's something else underlying it where that stems from. I wonder if it's tied into narcissism. Could be. It's a very narcissistic thing to, because you don't think about anyone else except yourself. That's true. I, I mean, I don't know. I'm not a psychologist. We are guessing. We are, we are guessing. people. <laughs> Please don't take this as science because we are just guessing. Yeah. <laughs> and if this is not you and you identify as someone who wants to be in control, educate us. Yeah. If you are someone who wants to be control across the board, but you also have a healthy marriage, you know, contact Haley and tell her about it. Please. <laughs> yeah. We genuinely want to know. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, we're going to take a pause here. And like before, and as we're going to try to do every time, this is to allow you to take some time to integrate, self-reflect, and let whatever was said settle in. And just a little check-in. How are you doing? How is your body feeling? You know, it's always good to self-reflect and see how you're feeling and see how you can make your experience better. So this pause, we're going to use a technique called box breathing. So I'll explain it first. Again, like always, if you have the opportunity to close your eyes, I welcome you to do that. If you can't, I just ask that you try to soften your gaze so that you're not, you know, staring hard at something. Soften as much as you can. So box breathing, what we're going to do is inhale for four seconds, hold for four seconds. Exhale for four seconds and hold for four seconds and keep repeating that. We'll do it just a few times. So we'll get you to close your eyes. We'll inhale starting. Inhale one, two, three, four, and hold. Two, three, four. Exhale. Two, three, four. Hold. Two, three, four. Inhale two, three, four, hold, two, three, four, exhale, two, three, four, hold, two, three, four, and then just back to your regular breathing. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoy the rest. Um, I'm also curious too, so you have been in, from what I know, one poly relationship well technically I guess now too but I'm curious to know prior to like how did you get up to the point of I guess being open to and wanting to experiment that way and like feeling comfortable enough to do it like how have you gone from you were married at one point right and that was when you were I mean I call it married that was when I was in New Zealand we weren't officially married but I had to do so much more legal paperwork than you have to do for a marriage that it felt like a marriage right because I had to get on a partnership visa and that is so much harder than you can even imagine. You know, like you think having to register and change your last name and sign a document is hard to get married. This is enormous. Like to get it, we had to you had to live together 
You had to have all the bills shared. Um, you had to have letters from everyone in your life, including family and friends and everyone you hung out with, testifying that you're a real couple and giving examples. Right. You had to have pictures of all everything you've done, of you do, going out and doing things as a couple. You have to picture. You have to have pictures from trips that you've taken together. And then I, as the foreigner, had to go get blood work and a police check and a chest X-ray. And then you have to have interviews separately about like your lives together to make sure you know stuff about each other every three months until you're over the temporary probation. I did not know that. It's it's no, a lot. Is that actually though the case for someone if they're coming to Canada? Because you were leaving Canada. I was to New, New Zealand. Zealand. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't feel like that. I don't think it's the same coming here. That was but... to get a partnership visa, which meant that I would have the rights to work. Right. And live because my partner was vouching for me. So I don't, that was specifically a partnership visa. So it relies on the partnership. But that's why I call it a marriage because <laughs> that is a huge commitment to make. Mm -hmm. And he was also then saying, I'm responsible for her. So yeah. what that means is if I commit a crime, he's, <laughs> he's, yeah, he's in trouble. Or if I run up a bunch of debt and take off, he's liable for it. Mm -hmm. So I call it, but yes, I was quote unquote married. He got the country in the divorce, which kind of sucks <laughs> because I miss New Zealand. Yeah. I would love to go there. We have a friend that is from there. Yeah. It looks like a gorgeous place. It's freaking amazing. I love you, New Zealand. <laughs> and anyway, and, you want yeah. to know about the really, sorry, going back. <laughs> Relationships from, you know, being monogamous to like, how have you, have you seen the progression of your life? And I guess mentally emotionally from those kinds of relationships into polyamory into like understanding more about yourself that's actually an interesting question because i don't think i've ever thought about it and now that i do think about it i'm not sure that i was ever truly monogamous not that i slept around or cheated on on people but i don't think in my mindset i was ever truly monogamous so i don't mm -hmm. think it's a case of I suddenly realized that I could have other people. I think it's more, I just was by default monogamous and hetero and wanted to get married because that's what you, that's not only what society says, but that's exactly how I was raised because I was raised Pentecostal. Like I was in the church five times a week. Like you, you have a specific script that you live by. And so I just was like doing that. I didn't really even think about it. But even when I was dating, well, he was a really terrible ex, but there was a lot of uh, self-realization I did. I was a, an alcoholic at that time, but I did a lot of self-realization because we were living together, but um, we both like made out with people on the side and we knew it. We didn't sleep with them, but like I had girlfriends that I would make out with and he was like always going on dates with guys, even though he said he wasn't bi. Like there was a lot. It was not healthy. It was not a healthy way to do polyamory and neither of us had a handle on our identity but now that I think about it we were kind of living non-monogamous we weren't ethically non-monogamous and there wasn't communication there was no either. communication about it but we knew that each other was doing it it all ended when we actually cheated like mm. on each other and then it it blew up <laughs> and I mean it's bound to because we're not doing it right and we and we don't really know that but when I look back I can see that the seeds were already there and that was like in my early 20s right and then in New Zealand 
I had a polyamorous relationship that I just didn't tell anyone about. So everyone here is like, oh, your first one was with the exes who I shall not name. I'm like, well, was it? I actually had <laughs> a boyfriend and a girlfriend at the same time. The guy that I was partners with, I had a girlfriend and I also had been with her boyfriend. It makes me sound makes me sound wild. I'm not actually that wild. I'm not that adventurous, but it just worked out that I got with her and I was with him, my partner, and um, her partner was one of my best friends and sometimes we would just be together. And so I was, without even defining it, I didn't even define myself as queer at that time. And I had a girlfriend and I had been in a threesome. I did not think that I was queer. I still weirdly thought that I was straight because I just didn't have the language. But, mm. and I was obviously poly and it was a lot healthier that time because we all knew. Like my male partner that I was in a partnership visa with, he knew about my girlfriend. He was really close friends with the guy. Like everybody knew what everyone was doing. There was no hard feelings. It just ended because it became impossible for me to juggle. Like I had a really stressful job. I was manager of the embassy theater and it was like a lot was going on. And I was like, I just can't. I don't think that I can maintain. I need to pick. Mm -hmm. So I picked. I picked him. Um, yeah, but so now that I think about it, I've always kind of been open to it. I had a lot of conversations with a friend that I made in New Zealand, too, about how we both didn't feel like monogamy was a thing for us. Right. And so we had a lot of conversations. We didn't have the language for polyamory, but her and I would go out for coffee all the time and talk about how we just didn't feel like one single person was right for us, that it would be more than one person. So I kind of feel now that you ask me that it's the the underlying core of it, the base of it has always been there. And now I just am more educated and I've tried it in various forms and actually started acknowledging it and doing it intentionally. The language. Yeah. That's so crazy how like the language has helped so much. The language words. really helps because if you don't have the language, you can't be intentional about it because you don't know how to approach it. You have to have the language and you have to have other people telling you about their experiences so that you know what it's like. Because otherwise, how do you communicate with your partner about it when you don't even know what it is you're talking about? So, yeah, I think so interesting looking back. I've been in monogamous relationships, but I don't think I was monogamous. Not actively, but in who I was. Mm -hmm. No, that's super interesting. Because I think for, I guess, because this is still, I think, such a new thing. And again, this is just me speaking from people I've talked to, people I've, you know, met and stuff like that, that for a lot of people who are trying polyamory, it's trying because of curiosity, but not necessarily because it's like, you just sound like you're just wired like that. It's just the way you think. It's just the way you are. It's the way your attraction works. Like all of that, that it's not just a curiosity. It's just how you are. And that there's guaranteed to be tons of people out there like that. But for most people that I have met and talked to, it's more like, I'm curious about this and want to see if I can do it. But that, you're just, yeah, it's just you. <laughs> That's interesting that you say that because I haven't really thought about it. And I really never looked back and put the dots together until you asked me this question. And it's not like I actively thought I wasn't monogamous. I just, I never really fantasized about getting married. There's never just... I always had like very multiple very close friends 
Like I had a best friend growing up and she's still my best friend, but I have other best friends too. I'm not very exclusive with anything. <laughs> so I think that I am just wired that way. But I also don't think poly is like sexuality. Like you're born into your, you're born with your sexuality, whether you admit it or not. You're not curated to be queer. You, It's just something that you realize about yourself. But with polyamory, you can you can enter it out of curiosity. Totally. It's not something you're born with. But then also, as you say, it might be something you're born with. Maybe there are people going, I don't particularly feel monogamous. That's okay. Because there's a whole other realm that you can explore. A huge yeah. realm. And it's, it's ethical. It can be ethical and it can be beautiful and it can be supportive. It doesn't have to be exploitative or minimizing in any way. There's lots of books you can read about it. Uh, More Than Two is a really good book that I would recommend. I think everyone should read it because it's it's really a lot about communication as well. So even if you're not poly, you should probably read it. It's called More Than Two. I'll show you the book after so you can get the information. Yeah, I'm like writing it down. <laughs> Don't worry, I have a copy. Um, And I just think, yeah, I think that you, if you are curious about poly, do some education. Don't just jump in with a bunch of people. yeah. Like, I really think it's important if you are curious about Polly, both of you or three of you or four, however many of you, however many of you do some research about it, read a book together, read a book about it together, talk about it. I feel like it's really important to, to, oh my gosh, Perseus. <laughs> the cat is like attacking the mic. <laughs> Perseus. Um, I think it's really important to really like go into your own thoughts, feelings, beliefs, and figure out what you value as well. Like you can't just go into that kind of relationship not knowing what you value and how you want to be communicated with and how you want to approach it. Like if you just jump in and just like have, this is just a weird example that just came to my head, like you can't just jump in and like have an orgy or like go and find other people. And yeah, you can't just jump in not knowing. And especially if you are maybe with a partner too. And um you know, you don't have a conversation about what's appropriate and what's not and your values, because if your partner goes and does something that they think is totally fine, but that's not OK to you, you need to know that you value certain things and not other things and having boundaries like those things, I think, have to be set in place. And I mean, sometimes some of it probably has to come from some experimentation and then realizing, oh, actually, I don't like that. But like you need to have those ideas of like open communication able to adjust things as you feel you need to because you can definitely like try something and then still say no I don't like it even after you've just said yes like you're allowed to change your mind no I agree there's and as with anything having discussions and boundaries and groundwork in place is a really good thing you really shouldn't enter a monogamous marriage without having these discussions either everyone talks like this is only for poly people or this is only for BDSM. This is only it's for cake. I'm like, no, the, we're just the people who are more experienced at doing it because it's necessary. You really shouldn't be like jumping into any kind of marriage without talking about it and That's knowing true. what your values are. I'm learning like, how to How do you feel about kids? How do you feel about mortgages? How do you feel about jobs? How do you feel about if someone gets a job in another city? Are you going to move? Are you not? Is that going to break you up? Like you really need to have these conversations. So yeah, if you're jumping into polyamory, you really need to set some ground rules but you also have to understand that it's a living thing, just like anything else. As as everything is a spectrum, as we're learning, like asexuality is a spectrum, sexuality is a spectrum. Oh, I love that gender has become a, a thing. But it's yeah. also fluid. 
everything is fluid. You don't just say, um, I'm bi, and then that's it forever. It might be, but you might then realize that you're they're slightly more than bi. Maybe you're pan, or maybe maybe then you're bi, and then you also discover that you are non-binary, that you don't identify with either. Like Everything is fluid. You don't just state what you are, and then that's it forever. So just like your expression is fluid, your relationships have to be fluid too. Mm-hmm. In a monogamous hetero partnership, you have to grow with each other or else you break up. That's the same thing with poly. You might lay down ground rules at the beginning that are working, but then other things come up that you then need to talk about. Or maybe you lay down a ground rule that is not working and it's stopping you from having some experiences. So you need to talk about that. It's fluid and it, it ebbs and flows as you grow in your experience. Mm-hmm. I think everyone needs to talk about this. Kink is the best example of healthy negotiation, to be fair. Yeah, I kind of want to dive into this a little bit of like, how do you personally approach uh, approach communication about these things? How, and especially maybe if you're um, not agreeing on something or, well, actually, I want to go through all of these things, like communication around if something has happened that you don't like that maybe you were trying, how do you bring that up with your partner? How do you talk about it? Like, how do you personally in your relationships go into the communication and have that open communication. Are you talking about kink specifically or just any like relationship? Anything and everything, whatever you feel called to. I'm just now I'm like, oh my gosh, communication. Let's just dive into this. Oh, no one's an expert in communication. I mean, <laughs> I just think that I haven't figured I figured out all the ways you shouldn't communicate. <laughs> so if you want a list of things that really don't work, I'm your girl. But there are certain things that that do work and it comes with um for me personally, I'm just going to talk about my own personal experience. This is not prescriptive for all humanity. This is just how I've been learning to communicate is A, I had to let go of anger because I was a very angry person. And the anger increased when I was diagnosed with depression and anxiety. Um, I was taking care of my depression and my anxiety and the suicidal ideation. But um, the anger, the underlying cause of why some of that was happening was not addressed. And it wasn't until I had specific therapy for anger and learn to address that and deal with that, that things became better. I can now communicate better because I don't immediately default to anger. There are coping mechanisms in place. So if you get angry quickly, look at that because that's not going to help your communication at all. You can't immediately get defensive, which is another thing that I did. And I think that stems from growing up. Um, My parents will never listen to this. And even if they do, love you, you did your best, but they were never good at communication. Uh, There was a defensiveness always, and there was a lack of wanting to talk about anything. So growing up, they never fought in front of us. They would go into another room and hide that because they didn't want us to see fighting. And they had their own reasons for deciding that that came from generational trauma, but none of that was ever shared. So from my end, I grew up not knowing that it was normal for people to argue and how to resolve that healthily. Mm -hmm. So whenever anyone had an argument, I thought immediately everything is everything's terrible. Everything's falling apart, which isn't healthy. Um, And then I learned to suppress a lot. Suppressing things is also not good for communication. So really to have healthy communication, it starts with you. And that's only 50% of it. So to make sure that you're communicating your best, you have to figure out what your blocks are so that you can approach it. And then you have to be not self-conscious. I think there's 
with me, there was this real need to not be seen as as wrong or stupid or not knowing or or confused. I didn't want to be seen as like, I don't know how to address this, or I didn't want to be seen as this is incorrect. What you did was hurtful. I just there are so many things I was just like, I don't want to talk about that. It's too vulnerable. You have to be vulnerable to have good communication. And you have to learn to take healthy criticism, not gaslighting, healthy criticism with an open mind. Um, in order to communicate, you have to trust that the other person is not going to immediately blow up and make you uncomfortable with yelling or make you feel endangered with physical threat. So you have to work on that. You are not going to be able to have healthy communication with someone who's abusing you because you're in danger, either emotionally, physically, or mentally. But if you're not in danger in that way, both of you have to agree to be a bit vulnerable and to take time after you hear something before you say your response. Mm. You don't have to immediately respond. We're very all about waiting for the other person to talk, stop talking just so we can talk. We aren't very good at listening, processing what was said, and then formulating a response. And that's how communication happens. It's like the best actors are actually good listeners. Because if you're just in a scene, all actors say this, if you're just in a scene and you're just standing there blankly waiting to say your line, you're not actually acting because you're not engaging with the other actor. And you can tell on screen or you can tell on stage. I did a lot of stage management and the people who are just counting, counting the lines until it's their line again, there's no life in that scene. Because in order to have life in that scene and make it feel real, you have to listen to their lines, no matter how many times you've heard it. You have to listen like they're just telling you new information so that what you say feels real. Um, and I've heard, I heard an actor uh, just recently saying that. They said, well, I'm not... Any, any evidence of me being a good actor is really just because I'm a good listener. I think it was Alan Rickman. And he said that the best advice I can give to actors is listening. Because you have to listen and then you and then it becomes clear what you say. And that is the best definition of communication that I can give. And it's hard. It's really hard. But I get better at it every time. I get better at it the more I learn about myself. I get better at it with the more language I have for my truth. I get better at it every time a relationship fails because as much as it hurts, failure is a really great teacher mm. and you can't progress unless you fail. Um, so I learn things that I don't like being done to me, but I also learn things that I do that are not helpful. So now communication, we don't yell, we don't get angry. If there's tension happening, kind of address it right away. Like if if it's tense, don't just think to yourself, oh, it's tense. I can't, I'm just going to leave them alone. Mm, maybe ask, okay, things are things are kind of feeling tense. Like I think we might have hit on something sensitive. Do you want some time? alone to process that and then we'll talk about it or can we just talk about that mm, oh I really love that yes I've been actually oh my gosh that's just like giving me light bulbs <laughs> I could have literally used this last night like we were going into a conversation about um like different chores that we each do and we started to get kind of like exactly that like a little bit of tension and instead of taking time to process we both kind of just kept talking and it just, it didn't heighten or anything like that. It just stayed in the realm of tense and a little bit uncomfortable. And I think that could have been really, really good as saying, this feels really tense and I would really love some time to think about this and come back and talk about it. 
because then after I just went straight to bed and he like hung out outside by himself and then he didn't come to bed for a while and it was just like then it was just that feeling of like it's still that kind of lingering feeling of discomfort where you don't feel like it was a very effective conversation and that could have been really amazing for that and most of the things like I always feel that like okay it's tense literally verbalizing that and having that conversation about do we need some time to just step away for a second and come back or can we just go ahead because most of the time I need to step away don't know if that's necessarily the case for him but I need that but also really important to then like respect whoever's choice like if you want to stay and talk about it but they need time you have to respect that they need time and don't be like no 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 I had to talk about this now yeah oh now I want to yeah. try to I want to practice that that and I, again that's a practice you have to practice the things it's there's a I learned it from my therapist actually when I was going through therapy for anger um I wasn't specifically for anger but as I was going through therapy for depression it became very obvious that a lot of my problems were rooted in anger <laughs> so then it became anger therapy um she she suggested that to me she's like you immediately rise to anger because that's your temperament you can't really fight who you are but you can control it so when people are like you need to change you need to not be angry you might be angry still and that's okay because anger is a real thing and it's an emotion and you're allowed to be angry what you aren't allowed to do is explode it all over people right so she's the one who taught me when you're feeling angry just verbalize that say i'm feeling angry right now I'm just going to step out of the room for five minutes and then I'm going to come back in and we're going to continue. And she said it's really important for them, but also for you to put a time limit on that. Five minutes, 10 minutes, whatever it is, can't be very long. Just enough time for you to collect and reflect on what they said and let the anger dissipate so that you can come back and talk about it. And that time limit is important for them because like you said, if you're the kind of person who really wants to process it, but the other person needs some time, the time limit helps you both. So you just say, oh, I really need to process this. I need to take 10 minutes because I don't want to speak in anger. I will come right back in 10 minutes and we will continue talking about it. And then you do that. You keep your word. But just verbalizing it, it's all about literally addressing the elephant in the room. Because what we don't do is we don't talk about things. We understand that there's tension and then we just pretend like there isn't. Or we yeah. understand that someone's angry and we just kind of tiptoe around it to a different subject and then or you just let it keep going yeah that's such an interesting thing with anger like anger such a normalized emotion but like anger that has kind of gone into unhealthy places such as being physical or yelling that is so normalized like just yeah there, and I feel like there's like almost two ends of that spectrum where anger to the point of complete explosion and like becoming somewhat scary and can be abusive is normalized but also completely suppressing anger because anger is also somewhat looked at as unhealthy is also very normalized but finding that middle ground of like a healthy anger where you like can vocalize that you're feeling it and you can process it and talk about it without it going to those either suppressing or explosion for some reason is not very normalized or taught or any of those things like, I'm the kind of person that when I get angry, I suppress. Like, I don't really know how to express anger. Like, I don't really go there. But typically, my anger ends up with me breaking down in tears, which then I'm able to process still that way. But like, a healthy anger where I could actually say, I'm angry and be angry, 
I have a hard time getting there. I can't really do anger. That's interesting. I was the opposite. When I get angry, I get angry. I don't get physical because I'm, I mean, look at me. I can't punch someone. But I get very, very loud. I yell and I curse and I get very scary. And I just, I don't care. I'll express anything. And that's not healthy. I feel like I used to do that when I was younger. Like when I didn't really know that I could be really, really mean. It was what during a time when being mean felt good. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, why I've swung the other end of the spectrum of like not showing anger because I used to get so, so mean that I would hurt people and they would then be really upset because I just said things just to like get them to leave me alone. Yeah. And now it's like that I saw how hurt people were from how I reacted that now I just don't don't go into anger. <laughs> See, and what what my therapist taught me, and we did a lot of work about it, is anger is not in itself bad. We start to think that if we're expressing anger and the expression is bad, that the anger is bad. The anger, none of the emotions are bad. All of the emotions are completely valid. It's how you deal with them and express them that's the problem. So she's like, the fact that something angers you is not the problem. The problem is that you act on it immediately without thinking and explode, which causes the other person to feel afraid or to shut down. And then you can't get to a healthy place with it, which frustrates you and makes you more angry. And I was like, yeah, that's so right. She's like, what she advised for me, and this is for me personally, (laughs) is the stepping outside for five minutes thing. She's like, or if you don't want to step outside, if there is a good flow to the conversation, but you know that you can't talk right away, tell your partners in a calm time when you're not fighting that this is your process so that they know what's happening when you go silent. Right. So when like say we're happy, say that you and I are a couple and we're fine right now and I'm going to tell you what my process is and this is literally what I do. My process is if I get angry and I don't want to step out of the conversation to avoid saying something in the moment <laughs> instead I don't count. I recite the opening narration of the A team in my head. <laughs> It sounds crazy, but I recite it in my head because it's just long enough to give me time to calm down. And it's just complicated enough that I have to actually think about remembering it. And like get outside of the anger. Yeah. So I I, I tell my partners this. So then if I told you that and then you say something and I just go, I just hold up one finger, you know what I'm doing. Yeah, it's not like a shush. It's not like anything no. like that. It's fully like having an understanding yeah. of what you have to go through. I just through look at like- you and I go and then I, I just kind of I pull back and then I just say the whole thing in my head. And it's just the right length of time to take the edge off that expression and to give me time to regroup. It's just complicated enough that I have to think about it without thinking so hard that I'm losing track of the conversation. And that's what you want. Something that does derail your emotion, but doesn't derail your thoughts. Hmm. And I found that super helpful. Yeah, that is really interesting. I think like myself and Tanner, we have vocalized a little bit. At least I feel like I have. Maybe we haven't properly done that. But I also think that's important because I do go quiet in conversations and I'm not shutting down. That's not what happens. What I do is I end up having actually an internal conversation in my head. And so I start going into like, especially if it's like placed of, sorry, in a place of tension or triggering, I guess, kind of very similar, but I think trigger is a little bit of a step out from tension. Um, I go right into my head and I start having a conversation of like, okay, I'm feeling triggered right now. There's tension. What's the conversation we've had so far? Why am I feeling this way? Is this coming from me or is this a valid feeling to have? Like I start having like this huge thing in my head. Why is this person reacting like that? If I put myself in this person's shoes, 
why are they reacting like that? And can I have some compassion and empathy? And this is literally the conversation in my head in like a span of like a couple of minutes. Then my partner, Tanner, goes, do I need to apologize? You seem really mad. Like, why are you so quiet? And in his past relationships, the silent treatment was anger and saying, you've done something wrong and I'm waiting for you to apologize. So he thinks that I'm just really mad. But instead, I'm like, oh, this is interesting. Why am I feeling this way? Why is my partner feeling this way? Why is our conversation gone like this? Like, it's like this whole thing that I start ask, asking myself questions and then answering them and trying to then like kind of analytically figure out how this has happened and why I'm getting triggered or why they're getting triggered. And then I also at that point then come back with a better response, which is also why I typically don't get angry because instead of like going like and getting angry, I go, okay, this is curious. I'm I'm feeling angry. How can I respond to this that doesn't come from a place of anger and it comes from a place of like emotional intelligence? <laughs> and yeah. that's like literally how my brain goes. And that's I I mean it's also something that I've trained myself to do. I've trained myself to start asking questions instead of responding to the person. But then he thinks that I'm really angry and I'm just giving him the silent treatment. But instead, I'm like <laughs> having this whole thing going on. See, and you've come across a healthy coping mechanism, but you haven't taken the extra step of communicating that to your partner. Exactly. And we're not taught to do that. We're taught to analyze ourselves but the other 50% of that in a relationship is communicating what you learn about yourself to your partner. So I had to say what I'm doing is I'm reciting the opening of the A-team in my head because that's the thing that will stop me from exploding and keep me in the conversation rationally. And they're like, great. So you need to explain to him because he has a lived traumatic experience of silence being hurtful and silence being a pointed accusation. So because you understand that about him, you have to say to him, here's what my silence means and take away that fear so that when you're silent, he knows what's happening and he just waits because he knows something better will come out of it. And we're not taught that. We're not taught to take what we learn about ourselves and talk about it. And you have to do that. You have to do that in any relationship, but you really have to do that in poly and in kink. But we are not the exclusive communities for communication. You have to communicate in every situation in life. You have to communicate as a parent. You have to communicate as a teacher. You have to communicate as an employee. You have to communicate as a partner. You have to communicate when you're driving. Like, you know, it's just like mm -hmm. you're driving the car and you're not signaling. Like, you have to communicate. That's true. That's you have true. To, you know that you're turning. Why do you signal? To let the other people know that you're turning. It's the same in conversation. People don't know what you're thinking unless you tell them. And that's what I've been learning through every relationship that I have failed spectacularly at, but which have all taught me something. And I've learned something really interesting about myself and my lack of understanding mm -hmm. about anger and about communication. So now, finally, you know, on this side of 50, I finally have some understanding of how to talk to people, which is lovely. Yeah. Better late than never. Yep. We this spring took a course called Nonviolent Communication. Um, what else they call it? Well, they, they called it conscious communication. So there was like two sides to it. There was nonviolent communication. And then I'm trying to think of what the other side kind of is. Um, but it was absolutely amazing. And it's learning about like when you're feeling triggered, understanding what you're feeling in that position. So you're literally given sheets of both like what would be considered positive or negative feelings, which again, there's not really positive or negative in that case. But to put it into perspective, 
And so you can literally look at the sheet in a triggered state or even not triggered after and go through it. You think, this is what I'm feeling. And you pick out the words that really stand out to you. And you say, when you do this, so to your partner, you say, when you do this, you have to have an exact example of yesterday, you didn't put away your dish and you just left it on the counter. Like you have to give very specific examples. And you say, when you did this, I felt, and you say the feeling that you had. And then um, you say, I felt this because, and you say, these needs weren't met. And you have a list of needs. And it's the idea that when you have feelings for something, it's because there's a need that's underlying it that needs to be met and it's not getting met. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. And it's a very interesting way of communicating. And then on the other end of that, you learn to look at your partner and say, like, I have noticed or like I have observed that when I do this, you have this reaction. Be- and then you- it's more of a question. So when I do this thing, are you feeling this because you're needing this? And especially if someone and you can use this for anybody, like if you have like a client or something that's coming at you with maybe some kind of like anger or accusation or something that you're like, okay, there is some tension here. You can go to them and say, are you feeling this because you're needing this? And it helps people to go, oh, yeah, I have some kind of need. And we're not taught to do this either. We're not taught to know what we're feeling. We're not taught Mm -mm. to know that we have needs and that the needs are valid. But yeah, it's a very interesting way to learn to communicate. Again, it's a practice. You have to really practice it. But then it's being able to understand yourself and how to communicate. I'm having this reaction because I have unmet needs. And it's communicating it in a way where you're not judging somebody else. You're not accusing them for anything. Um, And then it can help you understand each other. And you can use it on complete strangers. And it's a really, really healthy way to communicate and understand other people. I really like it because if you're the person who has more emotional intelligence because you've learned this new technique, you're giving the person with less the tools to respond in a healthy way because you're not accusing them. You're saying, is it because you feel like this? So they know how you're feeling and then they're not being accused. They're given an example to say, yeah, that's what I feel. Hey, mm-hmm. how about that? I do feel like that. Yeah. It gives you an opportunity to like there's another section to like when I'm doing something or actually both of them, you have an opportunity at the end to say, would you prefer if I did this instead next time? Or like asking what would be more helpful for you next time? Or in the case that it's like me telling you that you did something that hurt my feelings, I'm feeling this because I'm needing this. Would you be open to or willing to do this instead next time to help me get those needs met? Because at the end of the day, we all have needs that we want met. And if they're not getting met, that's when you have anger. That's when you have these extreme like emotions that make you want to have also extreme actions. Yeah. So when you learn that you have those needs that need to be met and you have this like common respect and common understanding among each other that we all just have needs that want to be met, it feels good to meet each other's needs. You want to help people meet their needs because it makes everybody's life better. Compersion. Compersion. (laughs) Bring it around. (laughs) No, but it's true. It's true. And also it's, it's taking the that the knowledge that you shouldn't use you statements because you're taught to use I statements because it's less accusatory because when you use you statements, it's accusatory and people immediately go, fuck that. And they put their wall up. So using I statements, but it's not just using I statements. It's explaining what you feel. It's explaining your emotional intelligence and it's giving them an opportunity to assess how they feel if they're not used to that. Like it's so clever. Mm -hmm. And if we could all 
work on communication, especially on the internet, we would be so much better off. Mm-hmm. But in your relationships too. And the thing that is so important about communication is that when you communicate openly, you get more truth about yourself too. If we were able to communicate openly about physical sex, maybe I would have learned earlier that I am egosexual, or I would have been able to, with a partner, figure out that language. Maybe they would have said, when you don't, when I want to have sex and I come on to you, you do seem distant. Is that because I'm not pleasing you? Is it something that I'm doing? And then I could have said, it has nothing to do with you. It's me. And then we could have gone, okay, let's talk about that. So it's a way also for you to get your identity better understood in your own mind as well as your partner's. Mm -hmm. And let's be honest, we all just crave, crave, crave so deeply to be understood. Yep. Like that's just such a, I well, I mean, again, this is just my own thoughts and experiences, but I truly believe that all humans, for the most part, want to be understood. And that's what creates a really amazing life is feeling like you're understood and welcomed and loved by people around you, but especially understood. Feeling seen. Yeah. Feeling seen in the exact person that you are. Like nothing's better when someone's like, this is who you are. And they say it, you're like, oh my God, like you noticed. (laughs) I love it. You (laughs) You feel like, you feel like it feels transcendent. Yeah. Yeah. You feel it because there's such a moment of bliss. You so rarely feel whole in this world. And when someone sees the truth of you and accepts you, there's nothing like that. So thank you so much. Um, this is Bean. You can find her on Instagram at Corrine Assistant. So C-O-R-I-N-N-E Assistant A-S-S-I-S-T-A-N-T on Instagram. Or you can also find Corrine um, on her cat's page, which is Sir Perseus um, at S-I-R-P-U-R-R-S-E-U-S. I think there might Instagram. be an underscore between the Sir and the Perseus. Is there really? There might be. Okay, so there may or may not be an underscore. (laughs) We should look and I'll put it into the notes later. There could be an underscore in between Sir and Perseus, but I really appreciate you coming on here and helping me learn and educating and being so awesome. Thank you so much. It was so much fun. (laughs) We'll do it again. (laughs) 